0: Series on the Armor of God called "Ready to Rumble," uh, talking about the spiritual warfare. <clears throat> excuse me, the spiritual warfare that we uh, engage in as believers. And what we've been doing is just going piece by piece through the armor of God. And today I'll be looking at the helmet of salvation mentioned in verse seventeen. So uh, before I get into that, let us begin with the most important part of any sermon, which is the text. And if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, I'll read verses 10 through 18 to give us our context. Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication. I shouldn't have done that in the middle of a sentence. Making supplication for all the saints amen and amen. So the the topic of this sermon series is is spiritual warfare. It's about our battle against the devil and his soldiers, these these rulers, these authorities, these uh, cosmic powers, these spiritual forces of evil. All of these terms refer to spirit beings who oppose the rule and reign of the one true God. And this armor of God is given to us in Christ So that we can fight against these evil beings. His armor both protects us from their attacks and enables us to actively fight against them, to fight against uh, their schemes. And as I said a minute ago, I'm going to preach today on the helmet of salvation. But before I get into that, I do want to say a few words about this topic of spiritual warfare the, uh, the three men that have uh, preached already in this series, our, our interim lead pastor Sam Shaw and uh, C.J. White and John Woodworth, have all touched on this some, but I think it's worth highlighting uh, often. And that is this, the, the, when you think about the topic of spiritual warfare, especially in our day and age, uh, we tend to go to thinking about the visible and extraordinary encounters With evil spirits, Uh, for instance, in uh, Christ's ministry, one time he and his disciples were in a boat, went across the Sea of Galilee, and they landed at a place called the country of the Gadarenes. And while they were there, Matthew eight mentions that there were two demon-possessed men that were living in tombs in that area, and uh, they came running out, and then you know, and encountered Jesus. And as you know from the story, Jesus, uh, in full authority, of course, commanded them to leave these men. A modern-day example would be uh, missionaries in uh, countries where uh, witchcraft is very prevalent. Uh, Often their ministry is opposed by, for instance, the local witch doctor who, through the power given to him by demons, is able to perform convincing signs and wonders and uh, keep the people under his sway. Now, those are, of course, prime examples of spiritual warfare. There's no doubt about that. That is the kingdom of light coming into conflict with the kingdom of darkness. And you obviously need the Lord's armor, you need the strength of His might in order to face such a situation. But most of our spiritual warfare is fought in the mundane activities of everyday life. Because spiritual warfare is about more than just those extraordinary encounters with the devil. I read a book a year ago or so about spiritual warfare by an author named David Powlison, a long-time professor at Westminster Theological Seminary. And uh, he came up with four ways of describing uh, spiritual warfare biblically that that sort of give us a a more rounded picture. Here's what he says. Spiritual warfare is a metaphor for standing on the Lord's side in the epic struggle between the Lord and his enemies. Spiritual warfare is a moral struggle. It's our, our struggle to be in obedience to the Lord instead of to our sinful desires or to the devil's temptations. Spiritual warfare is a synonym for the struggles of the Christian life, as I mentioned, that we all face. And spiritual warfare is a battle for lordship. It is, in a sense, being confronted with the question, who is Lord? Who is it that is in charge of your life and your destiny? And in light of these observations, Pallison concludes that spiritual warfare is about how we think, feel, live, desire, and act in the presence of our enemies. So whether you're aware of it or not, and Lord willing, at this point, you're you're fully aware of it, but every one of us who are believers are engaging in spiritual warfare every day of our lives. Every day, the devil and his angels are working to draw your allegiance away from Christ, to turn your eyes away from Christ. They're working with your sin nature and with this sinful world to erode your faith and to rob God of his glory, and they're working to keep people who are spiritually blinded, to keep them trapped in the kingdom of darkness. And you and I do not have the natural abilities or the natural intelligence to be able to engage and certainly not to defeat these spiritual beings, ancient and far more intelligent than we are. We must have the strength and the armor and the power that the Lord graciously provides by His marvelous grace. And uh, one more thing I'll say about that. I want you to Notice in that passage on spiritual, uh, excuse me, on the armor of God, that uh, the armor is is given as a gift by God to all of His children. So the reason I mention that is I don't want you to get the idea that you have to earn the armor of God. Oh man, I have had a terrible week. I missed my quiet time six out of seven days. I I screamed at my kids. I uh, you know kicked my dog. Well, that sometimes is a good thing. Just kidding. Uh, I offended all the dog lovers, uh, and so because of that, Lord, I, I don't, I, I've, got to, I've got to give it some time for me to be obedient and dedicated and strong in order to earn back your armor, so, but that's not the case. God's armor is given to us on the basis of the worth and merit of Jesus Christ, which never changes and is always full and perfect. So with that in mind, let's look more closely at this particular piece of armor, the helmet of salvation. And I want to begin this way, the helmet of salvation in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul actually got this phrase from the prophet Isaiah, who lived during the 8th century B.C. Isaiah, in chapter 59, mentions two of the pieces of armor that Paul refers to in Ephesians chapter 6. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness as well as the helmet of salvation. And uh, the context of Isaiah 59 is uh, he's describing a very dark spiritual time in the life of the nation of Israel, and then he describes the Lord's response to that situation. So, uh, read along with me, uh, starting in chapter fifty-nine, verse fifteen. I think it'll be on the screen as well. Isaiah says this: "Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey." Uh, you know, meaning there. In other words, if someone did stand up for what is right, the rest of the people would would attack him. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. So the situation here, Israel is in this dark spiritual time, and in essence, God's saying, well, let me look over the nation and see who can stand up and and get these people out of this. And he looked over the nation, and there was nobody. Nobody worthy, nobody able to do this. So then he adds this in verse 16. Then his own arm, God's own arm, brought him, speaking of Israel, Salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness, this is speaking of God, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. Now, the first thing I want you to notice or to think about is this question Who is it? that is wearing the armor in this passage. You can say it. Is the Lord, that's right. Yeah, so it's it's not he's not talking about God's people picking up the armor of God. He's talking about God himself, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ wearing this armor. He is the one that puts on this armor, wearing this holy armor. He goes into battle against his enemies. He executes judgment on those who oppose him and he brings salvation to Israel. And the salvation that he accomplishes is salvation of his people from their own sinfulness, which is described in more detail earlier in Isaiah 59. Now, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the apostle Paul then was able to say with full confidence and truth, that armor that Jesus is wearing, that's now given to us. Now, we are able to put that armor on. And, of course, salvation for us is a gift, whereas in Christ's case, it was an accomplishment. He wore salvation as a helmet because he was the one who was bringing salvation. In our case, of course, we're the ones receiving salvation. Jesus wore the salvation in his battle against the enemy, and we are graced to wear salvation in our battle against the enemy. Jesus, of course, didn't need protection. The, the, the mighty, the almighty son of God could stand against any foe in the universe without any problem But you and I do need protection, and so the Lord graciously says, I'm going to give you the armor that I used to defeat the enemies. As the worshiping crowd uh, mentions in Revelation chapter 7, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And that is why Isaiah would say he's wearing salvation as a helmet. It, It is so closely identified with who he is, it is like a helmet. The Almighty God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, is the source of salvation. Dr. Dennis Johnson summarized it like this, The Father planned our salvation, the Son is the accomplisher of our salvation, and the Holy Spirit is the applier is the of our salvation. And that salvation is given to us freely freely. By His abundant grace. So the Old Testament context of this phrase, the helmet of salvation, is a picture of Jesus defeating His enemies and bringing deliverance to His people while wearing salvation as a helmet. So keeping that in mind, I'll want to direct your attention back to Ephesians chapter six and uh, ask a few questions and try to answer them. They'll help us understand this topic of the helmet of salvation. What is what is the helmet of salvation? Abraham Coravilla, who's a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, has written an excellent uh, commentary on the book of Ephesians. He's actually written several that I I would recommend to you without reservation. But Coravilla notices, excuse me, observes that the phrase of salvation is a genitive of apposition. Are there any teachers in here? Did that make you happy to hear that phrase? It is a genitive of apposition. What that means is that phrase of salvation is describing what the helmet is. So another way to put it would be uh, the helmet which is salvation. That's, that's why, uh, excuse me, that's what a genitive of opposition is. Excuse me. It's like saying the helmet which is salvation. So the question, what is the helmet of salvation, really is the question, what is salvation? What is this salvation that Paul is referring to? So here's a summary that I came up with. Salvation is God's deliverance of people from his wrath, from slavery to sin, and from alienation from himself. In our natural state, we are enslaved to sin. The Bible calls us children of disobedience. We are under God's wrath, as John the Baptist mentioned in John three thirty-six, which is his righteous anger directed against sin. And we are alienated from God. We're separated from him. We don't have... A relationship with him. And when Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to the cross, he also willingly took the punishment that our sins deserve. He didn't just suffer physically, he experienced the full measure of the wrath of God against all of our sin. And because he paid that penalty, everyone then who trusts in him, who trusts and believes in what he has done, everyone that believes that he's died for their sins and risen from the dead is forgiven And reconciled to God because the penalty for your sin has been paid. The wrath has been satisfied. And I think when Paul is talking about this helmet of salvation, when he's talking about salvation, he's referring to salvation in its fullness. And salvation really has three tenses or three aspects. There is salvation past, salvation present, and salvation future. Uh, So let me break those down for just a minute. When you trusted in Christ, at that moment you were saved. So every one of us who are believers now, that is in the past for us. That is salvation past. Ephesians chapter 1 says in him in Christ you also when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised holy spirit. And of course Ephesians 2:8 uh famously adds for by grace you have been saved through faith. You were sealed You have been saved through faith. It's past tense. It happened when you believed. So that is salvation past. That is an accomplished fact that can never be changed. You were forgiven of your sins. You were justified or declared righteous. You were filled with the Holy Spirit. You were adopted into the family of God. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And if you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that is true of you. Absolutely and forever. Someone who is born again of the Spirit cannot be unborn again. If you have been adopted into the family of God, you'll never be kicked out of the family. You don't have to fight for or earn your place. That is salvation past. So you can say, along with every other believer, that you have been saved. And that goes for the weakest believer in this congregation all the way up to the strongest believer, which may be Janine Coleman, but that's probably you know we can debate that. I was gonna, no, I won't say that. I was going to say something about her putting up with Bob, but I won't say that. <laughs> so that salvation past. When you believed all that happened, and that is true of you, salvation present is the ongoing work of the Lord to make you more like Jesus. Another term for this that you'll hear in church circles is progressive sanctification. Sanctification is becoming holy Progressive means, of course, that it is progressing. It's something that's happening over time. There's process to it. God is progressively making you and me more into the image of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for, he, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, hear that nice present tense, who are being saved, it is the power of God. We are being saved from the practices and habits of sin. We're being brought to trust more in Christ Jesus, to depend less and less on ourselves, to depend more and more on Him. 1 First, First Corinthians 3.18 says, and we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. It isn't a steady, consistent upward climb. It isn't, uh, you know, a perfect 45-degree angle if you were to chart it over the rest of your life. There's a lot of unfortunately, ups and downs and sometimes some backwards and flips around and and then going forward again. But you can be sure, you can be absolutely sure, you can rest assured that the Father is working in your life to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. He is making you more patient, He is making you more gentle, He is making you more peaceful, or He is making you more humble, or maybe all of those at once, depending on what you're going through. And I will add that progressive sanctification is intended by God to happen within the community of a body of believers. So we have other people to lean on, other people who can help point out our blind spots, other people who can encourage us and teach us and help us all grow together. Ephesians chapter 4, 15 and 16 says this, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up that's that progressive sanctification. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body, excuse me, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The whole body working together, ministering together, living life together is what makes the body grow through the power of the spirit within them. The whole body builds itself up in love. Part of my responsibility here at FBC, not as a pastor, but just as a part of Fellowship Bible Church, is to encourage and edify and build up you, brothers and sisters in Christ. And part of your responsibility as part of Fellowship Bible Church is to help other believers in this congregation be built up and edified in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the present aspect of salvation. It isn't God making us more worthy to be part of His family. He isn't making us more acceptable in His sight. Since we are part of His family, since we are beloved children, since we are accepted by Him through Jesus Christ, then He is graciously and lovingly redeeming us more and more from sin. So just as those who are saved can say, I have been saved, all of you who have trusted Christ can also say, I am being saved. That is salvation present. And finally, there is salvation future. A day is coming when we'll be delivered from our fallen state and made perfect. The Bible calls this glorification. It's so certain that the Apostle Paul actually spoke of it in the past tense in Romans chapter 8. He said this, for those whom he foreknew, speaking of God, of course, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Let me just pause there for just a second. Uh, there are. There are a number of words in scripture that over time because of perhaps controversy or maybe uh, interactions or teachings you've experienced can be kind of scary to us and we may want to tend to skirt around them. Predestination is one of those because there's been so much controversy and it sounds so big and scary. But, but look at the comfort that Paul is offering with this idea of predestination. For those, uh, where was I? I'll get there. I downloaded this sermon this morning, so I'm not so familiar with it. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It's not true. (laughs) All right. uh, I'm sorry. Bring us back here. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, isn't that glorious? Glorious to be predestined, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It's something that should be celebrated and enjoyed and not, uh, not something that should cause us fear or trembling. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, none of us sitting here right now is glorified, to my knowledge. If you are, please come visit me. <laughs> none of us is glorified, but it's so certain that Paul could say, it's like it's already happened. I mean, it's done. He is going to glorify, so that's why he used... The past tense. First Peter one says that believers, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, talking about that future aspect of salvation, because our present salvation has already been revealed to us. Wow, forgiveness of sins, adoption into the family of God, uh, the f- the infilling of the Holy Spirit, life in the in the uh, as a beloved child. But there is an aspect of salvation that is going to be revealed in the last time Ephesians 1 adds in him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory and first Corinthians 13 12 adds for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now I know in part But then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. In our glorified state, we will experience unhindered fellowship with Almighty God. Not barred by our lack of understanding, not barred by the errors that each of us accrues in our understanding, not barred by our own sinful tendencies or the weakness of our flesh. We will experience perfect, full, gloriously boundless fellowship with the triune God. For the former things have passed away. Pardon me. This final phase of salvation is going to be indescribably and unimaginably wonderful. And that is a guarantee for each and every one of you who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a good way to summarize these three aspects of salvation. Salvation passed, you have been saved From the penalty of sin. That is conversion and justification. Salvation present. You are being saved from the power of sin. That is sanctification. And salvation future. You will be saved from the presence of sin. That's glorification. The helmet of salvation is salvation in all of these beautiful aspects. So that brings me to the next question. How do we take the helmet of salvation? Paul said take the helmet. Take the helmet. Now, as John Woodworth pointed out last week, these last three pieces of armor that that uh, Paul is talking about, he speaks of them in a little bit of a different way than the first three. The first three pieces are described as already being on us when we trust in Christ. He says, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of, of righteousness, and having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. The implication is that these aspects of God's protection are always. With us, but these next three terms, he says, take, take up the shield of faith, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Now, if you're really alert, and this happened to me last week, but not because I was really alert, but because I had to study this passage. If you're really alert, you will think, well, wait a second, that can't be right, because earlier in the passage, he said, take up the whole armor of God. So he said, take up to reply to all of these, and now you're saying, take just replies to these last three. Well, this is kind of interesting. It's a completely different verb that he uses. So in the first one, when he says, take up the whole armor of God, it's uh, more like recognize that this is what you have, recognize that it's right there before you. But on these last three, when he says take, he uses a verb that means to grab or to take hold of, to grasp. So all that to say, it's as if God is saying, in your battle... That breastplate of righteousness and that belt of truth that uh, the, the shoes shod with the preparation that comes from the gospel of peace, that is always with you. But you need to pay attention that when you're under attack that you need to turn and take up your shield. You need to take up your helmet. You need to take up the sword of the spirit. So how do you do that? How do you take this, the helmet of salvation? Well, one way to do that is by reminding yourself of what Jesus has done for you, reminding yourself of what Jesus is doing for you and what he has promised to do for you. Look at the lavish grace that the Lord has poured into your life. Thank you, Jesus, for taking the nails for me. Thank you for taking public humiliation, for bearing the very wrath of God, and for spilling your blood in order that I might have life. Thank you, Father, for lovingly working in me to transform me to be more like your son. And thank you, Lord, that I will one day be free from sin and pain and sadness. Thank you, Abba, Father, that I will see you face to face one day and be with you forever. Another way to take up the helmet of salvation is to confess, to speak what is true about your salvation. When you're fighting off a spiritual attack, confess the truths of salvation. Jesus died for my sins. So, yes, it feels like Satan's attacks have some, some weight because, yeah, I do deserve to be condemned. I failed. I disobeyed. I gave in to temptation. But you know what? What? Jesus died for my sins. It is Jesus whose righteousness I am depending upon. I'm forgiven. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. By the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, I am now and forever a beloved child of the heavenly Father. And as you struggle with sin, as you struggle with doubt, as you struggle with the devil's attacks on your peace or your joy or your faith, focus on the salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Take that helmet. The last question I'll address is this, how does the helmet of salvation help us in the battle against evil forces? So if we're, if we're focusing on salvation, if we're reminding ourselves of salvation, confessing the certainty of our salvation, what does that do for us in this war against the devil? Well, I'll just mention two things, and I would encourage you to try to come up with some more on your own, because there are certainly many more. Two things that the helmet of salvation gives us. First of all, assurance of right standing with God gives us peace and courage to fight. In a physical battle, when your head is protected, you have more courage because you're not having to worry about an injury to your head. For years, I worked for Letourneau Incorporated, and uh, I worked in the division that designed offshore drilling rigs. And so I had the opportunity to visit a number of offshore drilling rigs, uh, let me tell you, you, you do that for a few weeks and you will know every swear word in the English language as well as some in other languages. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's beside the point. Uh, it, while I was on those rigs, so one of the things that happens on offshore rig is there's always activity, okay? You're drilling 24 hours a day around the clock. When you're not drilling, they're not earning money, so they're always drilling. And because they're doing operations constantly, they're also moving equipment around the rig. So they have these large cranes that pick up heavy equipment, pipe and Wire and supplies and that kind of thing, move them all around the rig. Because of that, when you're on the main deck, there is constantly activity that is higher than you. So when I was on that rig, every time I stepped out of the living quarters, I was required to wear a hard hat. No ifs, ands, or buts. And what that would do, of course, is protect me from as serious an injury. It would probably still hurt if a pipe dropped on my head. But it would at least protect me from death or serious injury by having that helmet on. Now, what that allowed me to do then was actually focus on going about my business rather than walking around looking up and holding my head. So this helmet of salvation functions like that in our spiritual battle. We're not having to worry about oh my goodness, is my is my very standing with God at stake here? Am I, am I possibly, is the devil going to be able to snatch me out of God's hands or, or pull me out of his flock? And God's saying, no, 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 salvation, you have that as a helmet. So that's not something you have to worry about. You can have peace that you are God's and you will always be God's and his victory is certain and secure. And you can then have courage to fight. I was going to give a... Uh, football analogy but i'm going to move on it's not football season so we're moving on from that we don't have to fear death physical or spiritual death now granted believers can be physically killed and not spiritually killed but because we know where we're going because we are safe in god's hands it's not something we have to live in fear of we don't have to fear rejection from god the salvation that christ jesus gives us is a sure and solid salvation first peter 2 says behold i am laying in zion A stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Whoever believes in him. If you believe in the cornerstone, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, then you will not be put to shame. On the day of judgment when you stand before God, you will not be put to shame. You will be accepted before God forever. That's why Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation in Christ Jesus refers to being united to him. And the way you get united to him is by putting your faith in him. In his life, death, and resurrection. So what if I got angry? What if I cuss someone out? Am I condemned now? What do you all think? No. There's no condemnation. No condemnation. What if I neglected to pray and read God's word? No, there is no condemnation in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we give in to temptation, when we fall for the schemes of the devil, we do lose those battles, and there will many times be consequences for that. But we cannot lose the war, and we cannot be condemned if we're in Christ Jesus. The helmet of salvation also gives us assurance of God's love, which wards off despair now thinking about our salvation works against the enemy's attempts to make us doubt both the love and the goodness of God uh, for instance if you have suffered physically for a long time uh, my own dad uh, he's been been uh, with the lord now for many years but the last quarter century of his life he had a myriad of health problems kidney failure and and eventually a heart attack and liver problems anyway just a myriad of problems, so year after year after year, he was experiencing the pain and suffering of, of all these physical ailments, and uh, I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, one of the things he suffered from was the temptation to think, God has just, just pushed me away, I, I, I've been abandoned, he, he doesn't love me anymore, or he is, for whatever reason, not being good to me. And if you have been wronged by a fellow believer, speaking of physical suffering, now I'll move over to emotional and mental suffering. If you've been wronged by a fellow believer, or even worse, by a pastor, or possibly even worse, by an entire congregation, the devil will use that as well to get you to doubt the love and goodness of God. Yeah, this, this Jesus, I, I, I don't know if, he, if he's really what the Bible says he is. I mean, look at these people. Look at these people. that I'm sorry. I'm not pointing at y'all. Look at these people that I'm dealing with. You know, they, they hurt me. They rejected me. I was talking to a man on the phone uh, just a couple of weeks ago who has, has just gone through horrible trauma in his life, and uh, he had gone to a church for help, and when they found out some of the trauma he had experienced, they uh, asked him not to come around <laughs> because they didn't trust him. Uh, that, that's just unthinkably bad and harmful and When we experience things like that, the devil uses that as leverage in our lives to say, see there, God's not good. God doesn't love you. If we take the helmet of salvation, we can at least battle against that. Listen to Romans chapter 8 again. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? excuse me, from the love of Christ. Nothing can change the fact that Jesus of Nazareth died for your sins and rose from the dead. No matter what you go through, and I uh, please understand I'm not saying this flippantly. I recognize that people have suffered magnitudes of worse things than I have or may ever face, but it doesn't change the fact that the mighty Savior, Jesus Christ, died for your sins and rose from the dead and demonstrated eternally his love and care and goodness i know it doesn't feel like god is good when you're suffering i know it doesn't feel like or look like god loves you when you experience trial piled on top of trial but the lamb of god gave his blood for you and no matter how dark or painful life gets you can know with absolute certainty that the lord jesus christ is good and that he loves you with an everlasting love thank you thank you lord for that I think the Spirit's purpose in telling us to take the helmet of salvation is to communicate this truth: that focusing on our salvation in Christ protects us in the fight against evil. While the worship team is is coming back up, uh, I'll just want to mention one more thing uh, by way of uh, to conclude. I should say, uh, taking the helmet of salvation, as I touched on a few times earlier is not just an individual exercise. It's a group exercise. We are intended to be doing this to fight this battle in community. Now, I'm not prescribing a one-size-fits-all prescription for hurting Christians, but we do need to help our fellow believers to take this helmet when they're struggling or when pain is overwhelming them and they're not able to take it of their own accord. We need to remind sometimes a brother or sister of what Jesus has done for them when they need it. We need to help them focus on the assurance and reality of God's goodness and love for them. None of us is in a private war. We are the body of Christ. We are the family of God. So let me encourage you to bear one another's burdens by helping a suffering or hurting believer to take the helmet of salvation. Amen and amen. Turn it over to you guys. Thank you, Slade. Uh, Please stand as you're able. Let's just take a moment to respond to that word in this song.
1: Amen. If you would, please be seated. I want you to meet Amanda, John's better half, and her family. They're here with us. Would you guys stand? Let's just welcome you. So glad to, good to have you here. And two amazing kids that are here with them. So glad you're here today. Thanks for coming. One of the benefits of being with pastoral Uh, Interim Pastor Ministries, is that I have a coach, uh, someone who helps me along the way. So every Wednesday morning at 9 o'clock, we are online, and uh, he's keeping keeping me on the straight and narrow. And he and his wife, Judy, are here today. So Frank and Judy Beatty, would you stand up, please? Let us welcome you. (laughs) Frank has been an interim pastor about 47 times, so he has... (laughs) He just has a lot of uh, wisdom and guidance, and I'm really, really grateful for him. John and Amanda and their kids and family are going to join us for a potluck. We're going to go ahead and dismiss you guys so you can get on over there and grab something to eat. So head on over. And if you're, we'd like to invite all of you once again, and if you're going to come, uh, please pick, if you have children over in the kids area, please pick them up first and bring them with you. Uh, to the potluck. If you've got a question that you'd like to ask John or Amanda, uh, there are some slips that you can complete a question and answer session um, at a table there. Feel free to pick one of those up. And if you've got a response, if you've got a question or something you'd like to use, an online response form uh, that is available uh, for you as well. want we'll to invite the prayer team, if you would, to come on up. And in light of what we've heard about God's wonderful salvation, if yet you are not you're just not sure that you are in Christ. This would be a great morning just to come up to one of these folks, elders and deacons, and just say, Would you pray for me? And we'd love to pray for you. If we can pray for you about any other situation and serve you well like that, we would love to do that. Let's stand together. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you, be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his face to you, all of us, and give us peace. And if you agree with that, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.